Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jonathan Suggs. I'm one of the pastoral residents here on staff, and I, uh, I lead our college and young adult team as well. If you're new, welcome, and we're so glad that you're here. If you, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 7. That's where we're going to be hanging out this morning, Luke 7. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 17. So if you've been tracking with us, you know that we've been in this series in Luke where we've been looking at the life of Christ and the context of Luke's gospel account. And over the past couple of weeks, we've really seen uh, Jesus enter into his, his teaching ministry for the first time in Luke, where he talked all about the nature of the kingdom of God. He talked about what obedience to his word looks like, what disobedience looks like. And then last week, we saw what, uh, in, a, in an example of a guy who is pretty unlikely uh, example, but an example of a guy who embodies the faith in Christ's word that he was just teaching about. And that was a, a Roman centurion from Capernaum. And this morning, what we're going to see is we're going to see a little bit more about the identity of this Jesus of Nazareth. That's what we're going to see in our passage. So we're going to, I love this passage because um, we get a side, a glimpse of Jesus that we haven't really gotten yet in the book of Luke. Uh, and I was actually really excited when I found out I was going to be teaching this one because it's one of my favorites. Because it's a side of Jesus that we don't tend to think about and we don't tend to talk about all that much. So as Jesus, he, he travels into this small town that we're going to see. And he's going to encounter a pretty jarring situation. He's going to see a woman on the saddest day of her life. And we get a, a real tangible glimpse of, of what does Jesus act like and what does he feel like as he engages someone like this? We really get a, a glimpse of a, a different shade, a different side of, of Jesus that's not necessarily his person. It's not that he's two natures, God and man. It's not necessarily his, his work, which we're going to talk about both those things, but it's primarily his, his heart. How does he feel about people like that? Would you say that, that you know how Jesus feels towards you? It's an interesting question, isn't it? How does Jesus feel towards me? And do, and do you want someone who can actually help you and know you in your deepest pain and sorrow. Don't you want somebody like that? Then you need the Jesus of this passage. And we're gonna see a lot of things about Jesus. This passage is slammed full of things about Jesus. One commentator I was reading is what he said. He says, if this were the only passage that survived from the life of Jesus, there is enough in it to reveal to us his sweetness, his excellency, his person, his power, and his saviorhood. So this, this passage gives a very full orb, very complete picture of Christ. But the emphasis that we're going to be looking on and looking at in this passage is not so much his person or his work, but it's undoubtedly his heart. It's his heart for sinners and sufferers. How does Jesus feel towards us? And I don't think that we can even go through this life really keeping our sanity unless we've actually been acquainted with the Jesus of this passage. All right, so that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to go ahead and, and dive in. And so I'm going to pray and, and we'll get going. God, Father, I thank you so much that we get to, to sit under your word. I praise you that we get to, to, uh, to actually see your son who, who shows us the Father. That when we see Jesus, we see the Father. And so I, got, I ask that as we see Jesus here in this passage that you, would, um, that you would open our eyes to see a side of you that maybe we haven't considered all that much before. That you would warm our hearts in this passage. That you would expose our areas of unbelief and lack of trust and, and false worship. 
and that you would conform our minds to the truth of who you are so that we can love you and enjoy you and delight in you more. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Okay, so some of y'all like outlines. So this, we're gonna see three kind of points here. We're gonna see the scene, the interaction, and the response. So if that's helpful for you, there you go. The scene, you, you in verse 11? You in chapter seven, verse 11? All right, good. Verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. So Nain is a pretty small town. We actually don't know much about it. It's, this is the only time it's mentioned in the whole canon of scripture. And so we're not really sure too much about it, but through archeological evidence and stuff, we know that it's on the northern side of a, of a hill called Mount Mora, which is mentioned a couple times in, in the Bible. And uh, it's about six miles south of Nazareth, where Jesus is from. It's about 25 miles south from Capernaum, where we just saw Jesus was last week. And then interestingly, something that we're gonna come back to later is that it's about two miles away from a city called Shunem which was a particular place where the prophet Elisha did a very important miracle that we're gonna come back to later. But it's a, it's a pretty obscure town, Nain is. Um, so we're gonna kind of wondering, why, why would Jesus bring these people here? Let's see. So soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So if you've been tracking since way back in chapter four, we, we've seen this ever-growing, increasing crowd that ever since Jesus uh, showed a ton of authority by casting out the demon in the synagogue, there's been this ever-growing crowd and, and rumors and people chatting about, but who is this guy? What, have you seen this guy who speaks and teaches with such authority? And he does these miracles that no one's ever seen of? And, and as Jesus goes from town to town to town, all these people are talking and everyone's thinking, I'm, I'm gonna go follow that guy. And everyone starts leaving their hometowns and going to follow him. And you have this increasing crowd that's growing bigger and bigger. And everyone's talking about him. I mean, he's like, he's on Fox News and CNN. Like everybody's talking about him. And you really feel like, like we chop up these passages when we, when we preach them. But if you were to read just through chapter four through chapter seven, you would really get a sense of the, the social momentum that's picking up steam as, as it's going. This, um, that his popularity is just exploding. And all these people want to jump on board. And so we have this, this huge crowd that's, that's following him. And they've, you can imagine just the, the excitement that as they, they just saw, as we talked about last week, this pillar in the town of Capernaum, this centurion who built the synagogue. Jesus just healed his favorite servant. Like ministry is up and to the right right now. Like we, this is amazing. I'm following that guy. Let's get going. Wherever he's going, I'm headed. It's exciting. There's anticipation. We're wondering what, what in the world is this guy going to do next? What's happening? What's, is he going to charge the gates of Jerusalem? Are we going to kick out the Romans? Is he going to do something miraculous? I don't know. Like let's, let's go. Let's find out. And there's this incredible excitement. And Jesus takes them on a full day's journey, 25 miles south to little old Nain. I mean, it'd be like all of us in here getting like super excited and hyped up, running out the doors, charging up 26 to Bowman, South Carolina. You'd be like, I don't, I don't really know why we're here. This, this doesn't fit. Some of y'all also don't know where Bowman, South Carolina is and that's, that's probably my point. So it, everyone's excited, but they're probably wondering why, why are we here? What's, what is so significant about Nain that, that we would charge the gates of Nain? Let's see why Jesus takes him there. Verse 12. 
And as he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. So Luke is an incredible author. We know he's brilliant, but he's also just such a good storyteller that he loves to just put you in the story. He's saying, just imagine, you're following Jesus, you're excited, you're, you're heading down to Nain, and when you get there, behold, look, you can't miss it. It grabs your attention that as soon as you're walking in to the gates, behold, a man who has died is being carried out of the gates. It's a funeral. And you have, you have the, the police escort, the, the coach is loaded, the people are crying behind them. It's a very somber, it's a somber moment. You can't miss it. Luke wants you to see it with your, with your eyes. But this isn't just, uh, this isn't just a normal funeral, as if funerals weren't bad enough. This funeral is one of the most devastating kinds of funerals that we see. Because look who this guy is, who has died. He is the only son of his mother. Her only son, her boy. Throughout scripture, the, the loss of a child, and in particular an only son, is shown to, just, to be the height of sorrow. The one example is, is in Jeremiah. He says, O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth, and roll in ashes, make mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation. I think this might be the, the worst pain on this side of eternity that someone can experience. And some of you people in this room, you, you know that pain. You've been through that. You know what this woman's feeling. You know that the searing pain of that loss. You can resonate with this woman that it's a, it's a deepness and a, and a despair that, that's so deep and far down in you that you don't even have words to put to it. Sometimes it, I imagine it can even be numbing. And that's what this woman's experiencing. But if you can imagine it, her situation is even worse than just losing her only son. Because look, look who this woman is. She was a widow. Which means her husband has already died. Like she's already been through this once. And you can imagine just her, her emotional experience as she's, as she's at this funeral. That not that long ago, she, she mourned the loss of somebody else. She prepared the body for burial. She walked in the procession. She saw the body placed in the tomb and the tomb closed. And it wasn't that long ago. And now she's here all over again. And you can just feel the the weight and the sorrow that this woman must be going through, the images and the pictures that must be filing through her mind right now. She's not only mourning the loss of her son, but she's probably re-mourning the loss of her husband. But this time, it's her greatest fear. It's her worst nightmare. The worst day of her life. And so not only she lost her husband, not only has she lost her son, but in this time period... To not have a male in the family. She might be able to provide for a little while, but at some point she is going to be completely and utterly destitute. There's no possible way for her to get provision unless somebody else from the outside acts. That she has no way of taking care of her most basic needs anymore. And so 
all of the, the hopes and the expectations and the dreams of what the life that she thought she would have are done, faded in a moment. They are being placed in the tomb with the son. And you just gotta wonder all of the, the, the images and the pictures that are rolling through her mind of the life she thought she would live, the people that she thought she would have around her, the husband she thought she would grow old with, the son she thought she would be able to see have a spouse and have their own family, the things that she thought she could rely on, all of it washed away in a moment. And the, and the questions, man, the questions are the worst part when you're going through grief, aren't they? Can I even live like this? Why, why is this happening? Are people going to distance themselves from me? Will, will I be a burden to people? Can I provide for myself? Where will I live? God, why have you done this? Do you even love me? Have you ever asked those questions? You know that pain? And look at the end of verse 12. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So, let me just say this though. Although there's people all around her that are mourning with her, praying with her, encouraging her, that anyone who's gone through grief knows that those people don't really know what's going on in her heart. They're with her, they feel her pain with her. She might be thankful, but they don't really know the, that pain. Proverbs 14.10 says that the heart knows its own bitterness and no stranger shares its joy. That the heart knows its own bitterness, that nobody else can, can know that. You, I don't know what's going on in your hearts. And frankly, you don't, you don't know what's going on all the time in mine unless I give you that information. But even I might be keeping some back for me. But don't we all long for, for solidarity in these moments? Like, don't you want to know that people love you and know you all the way down, even into the deepest and darkest pain and the most sorrow that you're ever going to experience? Don't you want that solidarity? I think we, we, we all show this differently. Like, some, some of us, we, we don't want to tell anybody when we're going through something tough because we can't imagine the thought of someone responding negatively, not having solidarity with us. That might crush us. But some of us, we tell everybody when we go through grief. We want, I want to tell everybody all that I'm feeling, all that I'm experiencing all the time because so badly I just want people to know what I'm feeling and to feel it with me. I want people to weep with me. And, I, and so I want you to see this. Like even though you, most of us in this room have never experienced what this woman has experienced and probably may never will, every single one of us faces suffering. Every single one of us faces death. Every single one of us faces the, the crushing loss of hopes and expectations and dreams for the future. So, so where are we going to turn to the, when we have those? What are we going to do with that? Where can we possibly find solidarity if no one actually can, can enter my heart and know me like that? Let's see how Jesus interacts with this woman. Verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, first off, isn't this amazing? I mean, here's Jesus 
with all the popularity and the excitement of the crowds and the momentum, and he has eyes for the widow. And we see, we see two firsts, two first things in the book of Luke right here in this, in this verse. And, and the first one is that this is the first time that Luke actually calls Jesus Lord. Do you know that? The centurion last week called Jesus Lord. Simon Peter has called Jesus Lord. The leper that Jesus healed has called him Lord. And Elizabeth has called Jesus Lord. But this is the first time that Luke in his narrative writing actually calls Jesus Lord. And what an incredible place to do it. Isn't there just a major contrast here? There's a major gap between this highly exalted Lord and he sees the widow. And man, like when, when, you're, when you're experiencing grief and the, the feeling of isolation and sorrow and suffering, he sees you. He sees you. The Lord sees you. And the second thing we see in this for the first time in Luke is what he says next. He had compassion on her. You know, this is the first time that we actually get a glimpse into Jesus' emotional life, which is a really interesting thing, isn't it? That Jesus has an emotional life. Like, it's not something I really think about. We, we think of emotions. We think of like you know, teenagers. Like we just don't think mature, emotional adults. But like, here's Jesus with an emotional life. That's not something I, I tend to, to think of that often. But what, we, but what we see here is that we really do get a glimpse into his heart, that it's not chained clothes like we often do. It's, it's open, it's laid bare. And what we see in it is compassion. This, and, and this compassion is the most attributed emotion to Jesus in the gospel accounts. Do you know that? And I just wonder, what, what would you, what's the primary emotion that you would attribute to Jesus? Is it disappointed, fed up, frustrated, indifferent, apathetic, sad? Is he just sad all the time? What is it that Jesus' emotional life is like? Would you say that he's compassionate or was he just efficient? I feel like that's a very common American tendency is to think that I worship an efficiency-minded Jesus. That my Jesus, he cares about uh, the perfection uh, in my life of sanctification. He cares about the new ministry, the reaching the nations, the, um, the excitement of the, the new opportunities, the charging the hill, the doing the next thing. But does he actually care about relationship? Does he actually care about you? Does he care about your heart? Does he care about what you're going through? The, the noun form of this word, I'm not gonna pronounce it because it's like one of the hardest to pronounce, but the noun form of the word that, that Luke uses here, it literally means guts or intestines, which is a, a very visceral um, picture of, of what this emotion feels like, isn't it? that his, his gut is turned when he sees this woman. Have you felt that? Like you've seen someone in such a rough situation and you think, man, I'm just, I'm gonna puke. Like if I hear anything more about that, like please don't tell me any more about what that person's going through because I might just throw up. And the amazing thing is, is like, yes, we feel that. Like we know we can relate to that experience, but Jesus even more so. Because Jesus is, I don't know if you think about this, but Jesus is more human than any of us are. 
Because he doesn't have the sin that has messed up our emotional lives. Do you know, do you know that we have jacked up emotional lives? <laughs> how many times did you overreact at traffic this week? Right? But how many times did you underreact at something this week? See, that's the flip side of it, is, is sin has a way of turning down the dimmer when it comes to compassion in our lives. That we don't feel compassionate towards people as much as we ought. But that's not true for Jesus. That he doesn't have the sin that, that binds back his compassion. That he feels the full blow of it every single time. He doesn't know half-hearted compassion. He knows the full thing. Which means that Jesus' emotional life is far more true, far more balanced, more full than any of ours. Like some of you, I know, I know some of you, you're bleeding hearts. It's great. You're a gift to the church, but you're bleeding hearts. And, and yet, the first person, and the, the person in this room who experiences the most compassion can't hold a candle up to the compassion of Jesus. It's nothing compared to what he feels, to what he experiences. It wrenches his gut. It pulsates in his heart that you see throughout the Gospels that he, he weeps, he cries, he even gets angry because of his compassion for his creation. Which means that Jesus, he feels your pain and your sorrow as truly and as deeply as you do. Like, do you think he doesn't? He does. He knows your pain. In fact, he might even know it better than you do. He knows it all the way down. And this is, this is all the solidarity. This is the solidarity that we all long for, isn't it? That I read a, a study this week that um, 30% of atheists and agnostics have confessed to praying at some point in their life. Why? Because maybe, just maybe, the God who is omniscient knows them all the way down to the core, and at least he might be able to relate to them. That in personal crisis, maybe that God knows them. Because this is all what we long for. We want to know that someone is in it with us. But in light of that, what Jesus says next is actually very interesting. It says, And said to her, Do not weep. And this is so fascinating in the fact that it just said he's compassionate. And then it says that he goes to the woman and says, Don't weep. Because just imagine that you're, you've left the funeral home. You're driving in the car behind the police escort. You get to the, to the graveyard. You're at the graveside service. They're bringing the body up to be able to put in the tomb. And this guy walks up with a whole crowd of people and he says, hey, stop crying. What are you doing? You're slapping Jesus in the face, aren't you? Don't lie. You are. It's okay. He forgives, all right? But you're totally doing that. Why? Because he's, this is either incredibly harsh or incredibly naive, unless he can actually do something about it, right? So what we're going to see next is actually what, what Jesus' compassion looks like when it moves from just an internal feeling to action. What does Jesus' compassion look like in action? Verse 14. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. So I didn't know what a beer was. Apparently it's an open coffin that's just like a platform, like a gurney that they would have carried the body on. I had no idea what that was, so there you go. In the case, you, if you knew what a beer was because you did better on the SAT than I did, 
great, but I didn't know what it was. So it's an open coffin. And notice the verbs though that in this interaction. Do you, do you see the verbs? And Jesus, he sees the woman. He has compassion on her. He then speaks to her. And then he, he approaches, he comes up to him so close that he touches the thing that the dead body is on. And, and like, this is just, socially, this would have been so foreign. Like, you don't touch dead things, Jesus. Like, you just, we have rules and precautions for this. Don't touch the dead body, please. Like, you don't do that if you're trying to stay ceremonially unclean, or ceremonially clean. Because as soon as you touch a dead thing in that society, you are deemed ceremonially unclean. But, but what does this show? This shows that Jesus' compassion moves him into intimacy. See that? Where he's, where he's walking all the way in to the point of being able to touch death itself. He completely interrupts the funeral by just touching. But then the most shocking thing is, is what he does next. He speaks to the dead man. Now, the dead man, he can't see. He can't hear. He can't think. He can't... Th- you know, decide, am I going to obey Jesus here or not? And Jesus speaks to him. And again, socially, I just wonder what the disciples in this crowd were thinking. Like, we just followed this guy from where to where? And he's, he's doing what? Like, young man, what young man? Like that young man? The one that's dead? I think so. You don't talk to dead guys. Well, this guy does. We should stop him. Well, let's, let's wait. Let's wait and see what happens. Because shockingly, after he does probably something that would have been deemed almost offensive in that time, shockingly, verse 15. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. I mean, don't you love that? Like, it's not even noon yet, Jesus. Like, we haven't had lunch. And he's doing this kind of stuff. It's, it's brilliant. It's amazing. The only obedience in this passage is from the dead guy that everyone's crying about. And... I just love how Luke records this. Like, dead guys don't sit up. Like, that's, that's the point, right, They're, of being dead. And this guy's like, boop, oh, hey, ma. Like, it's so anticlimactic. Like, it, it, there's, no, there's no fireworks. There's no explosions in the background. It's not Mission Impossible. Like, you just didn't drive off the cliff to the hang glider to the guy and, like, I raised thee. Like, there's none of that. It's just, like, be raised. Oh, okay. He gets up and starts speaking. And it just, it screams the, the power of Jesus. Which, I mean, we've seen this. It's not necessarily all that new, right? We've seen this in Luke. We've seen Jesus, just by the words that come out of his mouth, being able to cast out demons, be able to teach with authority, be able to heal diseases. But this time it goes further than anyone has ever seen it go. This time he reaches past the veil of death and pulls back this man. That at his bidding, at his words, death coughs up what it just ate. Like that. And this is why Jesus, this is why he isn't cruel when he says to not cry. This is why he's not cruel when he says, don't be anxious, don't fear, don't worry. Because the Lord of life has entered the scene. But the key is actually what Jesus says next. And Jesus gave him to his mother. 
That's the key. He gives the son back to the mother. He says, hey, she needs you here just a little bit longer. I need you to be here. That this is compassion, right? That this, Jesus' power isn't abstract from who he is. It isn't distant from his art. There's not Jesus and then powerful Jesus. His power is robed and it's doused and it's drenched in his compassion. And I think if we're not people who are acquainted with the heart of Jesus, we tend to think of him more as a taker than a giver, don't we? And we tend to think that he doesn't actually love to good give, good, give good gifts to his children who ask. But when we see his heart, when we see his heart for a woman, and this is woman, he says that he gave the son who he has every right to back to his mother, showing that this whole interaction was for the mother. Which is interesting because just look back over this interaction so far. What did this woman do to move Jesus to do this miracle? The most, probably the the most brilliant thing about this passage is what Luke doesn't say. He doesn't say that this woman had amazing faith. They didn't like get up a posse and go grab Jesus from the next town. There's, There's no sending someone to go get him. There's no falling at his feet and weeping. Which is, it's so obvious that Luke wants us to see this because of the context, right? You remember last week, what we saw? That the centurion, he, he sends the Jewish leaders, then he sends his friends to Jesus, and Jesus marvels at this guy's faith, so much so that he raises his servant for him, or he heals his servant for him. But here we get none of that, which means that the woman didn't do anything to move Jesus except just have a need for him. All she did was just have a need for him. Do you tend to think that that God is just always waiting for you to exercise the right amount of faith? Man, how, how poor would we be if, if Jesus just waited for us to have perfect faith before he actually helped us? Should we have faith like the centurion? Absolutely. Jesus marveled at that faith. We should strive for that kind of faith. And, but don't miss the fact that Jesus loves to just interrupt funerals completely unannounced full of compassion. He loves to do this. So you can imagine at this point that this scene is probably pretty crazy, right? Like people are probably weeping, running around, praising. There's, this funeral is probably turned into a party. But the question for us is, is what do we do with this? Because this is so miraculous, but it's also distant, isn't it? Like, haven't people in this room, haven't we prayed for things like this, miracles like this, and yet we haven't necessarily seen them happen? So, so what do we do with a story like this? And I think those last couple of verses help us in that. Look at verse 16. Fear seized them all. Yeah, you bet your bottom dollar it did. <laughs> I'm sure Uncle Shadrach had a few things slipping out of his mouth when that happened. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So notice how how the scope has shifted. 
You know, it's like a play where the spotlights were on Jesus and the son and the mother. And now the curtains have been drawn back and now we see this big crowd once again. They've re-entered the scene. Look at this. They, fear sees them all. They glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people. And then this report went about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Everybody's hearing about this, which means that the miracle is not just for the individual of the mother, that individuals are corporate. They're meant to teach us something about the one who did the miracle itself. Which means that the point of of this passage isn't the miracle. It's about the identity of Jesus. It's who is this one who raises the dead? And... That's what the crowds are doing. They're, they're trying to fit Jesus into an understanding, which all of us have to do. We all have to find a, a place where, where Jesus, where does this guy fit? And everyone has opinions about Jesus, right? Everybody. So, but the question is, is it the right one? And really, these, these crowds, they, they respond in, in a natural way. They respond with glorifying God. They don't understand it, but they know that this is definitely the work of God and not the work of men, Right? That's right. Like, let's affirm that. That's great. They're, and they're probably thinking about, um, commentators know that they're probably thinking about two in particular stories that have happened in the Old Testament. One, go back, go, when you go home, read these. That'd be super helpful. One is Elijah in 1 Kings 17. He does a very similar miracle. He, he raises a widow's son. The second one is Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4 where he raises a Shunammite woman's son. And as I mentioned earlier, the place where Elisha did that was two miles away from where this miracle happens. So as these people see the miraculous, as they see the impossible happen, immediately they're thinking, oh wow, this guy is a great prophet. Good. And that's naturally what they're thinking about. They're thinking, we've seen these miracles. We've seen this all before. My goodness, it's happening again. This guy is a prophet. And they're right. They're right. Like Jesus is the true and final prophet who has brought the, the word of God. Hebrews 1. That many times in many ways God has spoken through the prophets. But in these final days he has spoken to us in his son. So they're not, they're not wrong. But there's something here that we as the readers get a glimpse into that these people don't. Do you know what that is? It's his heart. They don't know why in the world Jesus does this miracle. They don't know what he's doing, why he's doing it. All they see is the miraculous, the powerful, the authority. And so they think, prophet. But the problem is, is that we don't just need a prophet, do we? We don't just need a miracle worker. We need a compassionate redeemer. We need the heart of Christ. You know, over a, a hundred years ago, there was a guy named B.B. Warfield. And he wrote a, a fascinating essay about the emotional life of Christ as we see it in the Gospels. And one of the things that he says in this that I found super helpful preparing for this message is, he says, it was not merely physical troubles that moved Jesus to pity, but their root, their root in spiritual poverty, the damage and destruction of sin on his creation, on his beloved, is what most moved him. 
What is he saying? He's saying that it's not only for people like the widow in this passage to know Christ's compassion. That his compassion is for all who suffer under the brokenness of sin. Under the bondage of sin. Under the destruction of sin. And, and how do we know this? Because of the holes in his hands and his feet. Where is his compassion most shown but in the cross? That he who didn't have to, to intermix himself with all of our pain and our sorrow and our death and our grief became, as we sang just a minute ago, a man of sorrows. He acquainted himself with our grief. Why? Because of compassion. Because of his heart for his creation. That unlike the only son in this passage, the true only son, the only son of God, gave his life so that he could give you life. Do you know that? So in a way, we all want, we all think that, that we're the woman, the widow in this passage. And, and in a sense, we, we are. But in a truer sense, all of us are really the son in this passage. That the true son gave his life so that we might be brought from death to life. And like I started with, unless you have this understanding of the heart of Christ, you'll never keep your sanity in this world. You'll, you'll drive you crazy because you'll never actually know how Jesus feels about you. But if you see that the one who weeps for you and weeps with you is the same one who makes death look like a nap, until you see that, you'll never actually come to him. You'll never actually know his heart. You'll never actually know how for you that he is. And in that, he really has fixed our greatest problem, hasn't he? Of sin and death. So it's, it's not about the miracles necessarily. It's about what he's already done for us on the cross and in the empty tomb and what he promises do, to do when he comes back to make all things new. Like I said, until we see this, until we meditate on Christ's heart in this way, we'll never want to come to him. He'll be terrifying. If he's just powerful, but not compassionate, we have no idea how he ever feels about us. We'll just be nervous all the time. We're wondering if, you know, if we get to heaven, he'll be like, I guess you could come in, but you gotta stay way over there, so don't get anywhere near me. Because you don't actually like us. But when we see that his heart is for us, when we see that he weeps for us, when he weeps with us in the deepest and darkest sorrows, and that he has gone to the, into the deepest and darkest sorrow and blown a hole through the backside of death to give us life, man, that's a completely different savior, isn't it? Remember how he invites us to come to him in Matthew 11? Come to me, all who labor in a heavy laden, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? Because I am gentle and lowly at heart. Because of his heart for us. Because of his compassion. That he knows us all the way down to the deepest parts of who we are. He knows every bit of pain. He sees us all the way through. And only he can actually walk with us through it. So as we close, I just want to take a second and say, with everything we've seen here this morning, 
what does this mean for the skeptic in the room? What does this mean for the new Christian in the room? And then what does this mean for the Christian who's been following Jesus for a while? So for the skeptic, I want you to consider that the compassion that you long for, that you love, that you want society to embody, that you hope that we'll treat each other with, that compassion can really only make sense in Christ. That if, if all of this Christian stuff isn't true, and all that there is in this world is just the strong eat the weak, then why would we have compassion? As uh, an author, Annie Dillard, once wrote, the evolution loves death more than it loves you or me. So then why compassion? Why would we be compassionate for each other? Why do I desire that in my heart of hearts? It's completely unnatural. It makes no sense. But in Christ, it makes complete sense. And our greatest longings and our greatest desires when we're going through suffering are found in the depths of his heart. So I would ask you just to, just to consider Christ. Consider his cross. Consider his heart. Is that something you can find anywhere else and it actually makes sense? For the, for the new Christian in the room, I just want to say that, that you are not sufficient to handle your biggest uh, challenge in this life. And neither are your uh, relationships, your finances, your social status, or anything else you want to trust in. Because every single one of us is going to go through some kind of suffering like this widow. And then ultimately all of us are going to face death like this son. So is what you're trusting in compassionate enough to walk with you through suffering like that? And strong enough to be able to take you through death into life on the other side? Is the things that you're trusting in have a heart for you like that? I would encourage you to, to abandon those things and to trust in Christ alone where his heart is for you. And then lastly, for the Christian in the room who's been following Jesus for a long time, I just want to ask, do you tend to have a one-sided view of Christ? Does he just care about efficiency? Is he just powerful? Or have you been acquainted with his heart? Do you know his compassion? Do you know how he feels about you? Do you know how his heart longs for you? That when other people are around you and they meet your Jesus, do they find him compassionate? I would encourage you to meditate on his heart as well. Meditate on his heart for sinners and sufferers like us. That it is so deep and so full that he would become like us to conquer death for us so that we can be with him for eternity. Let's pray. Christ, I praise you that we get to see this account of this story today and that we get the privilege of seeing your heart laid open, exposed before us. But that we could actually see that heart, not just in how you feel, but also in what you do and how that compassion moves you to action, how it has moved you to, to action uh, in the cross and in your resurrection. And once again, at the end of time, when you make all things new. So God, I ask that, that we would be a people who are close to your heart, that we would acquaint ourselves with it, that we would know it, that it would then pervade how we interact and we think and we talk with one another so that we would be people who embody your very compassion. That you would work your, your compassion into our hearts by your spirit that you send to us. 
to make us more and more like you. But God, more than just making us compassionate so that we can be better or more like you, God, I ask that you would just completely and totally grip our hearts with this. That we would praise you and wonder about how you could ever have so much compassion towards us. That despite our our wayward hearts, despite our our sin and um, how we can be (laughs) completely frustrating, God, you, you love us all the way down even though you also know us all the way down. So God, help, help our hearts to be warmed by yours this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.